hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Hello, this is Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnut. And Jasmine, you've got something really special for us on Women Worth Knowing because you do not have one woman, not even two women, but how many women are you going to profile? Uh, We're going to try to do six, six women. (laughs) Six women. That's amazing because, you know, it took me uh, one woman for four episodes. Oh, yeah, Amy. Yes. Yes. And then with Elizabeth uh, Blackwell and um, Ida Scudder, it took me two each. Yes, yes, that's true. And— in a couple weeks when we do Helen Rosevere. That's at mm, least two, if not yes. three. Yeah, that might be a three. We'll find that, out. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Leave you hanging. Yes. And so anyway, six women. Let's see. Let's let's do this. Let's do this. Okay, we're right. on our we're on our kind of our medical. Yes, we're still series. in the yes, women in medicine. So we wanted to kind of give a shout out to, to several nurses women. and doctors. And I think one of the reasons that we like this is with the COVID that we've had in twenty twenty one, it's these uh Medical personnel, which have really mm. been on the front lines, risking their lives yes. yeah. and helping people. And so when we begin to discover all these um, Christian women who were really exceptional in mm. their field, we wanted to highlight them. Yeah. So we just kind of thought, let's do some I love it. Yeah. medical personnel. And here we are. Yes. And Jasmine's on. got six. <laughs> we might end up being five. We'll find out. <laughs> <Okay>. So <laughs> I'm very overly ambitious sometimes. So. Uh, But I want to start with Clara Swain, and she was the first qualified woman missionary physician. Not female physician. We know that was Elizabeth Blackwell, but the first one to go out on the mission field. And she founded the first women's hospital and medical school in Asia, which is pretty amazing. And she was a real influence in uh, Ida Scudder, who we Mm -hmm. talked about earlier. Yeah, because she was before. Yeah. mm -hmm. In fact, she was one of the inspirations for Ida Scudder. Oh, I love that. Mm -hmm. Tie them all together. They're all connected somehow here. And it was really important for Clara Swain working in the Asian countries because the Asian mentality was that a man physician could not see women. Mm -hmm. United States, they were a little broader-minded in England, the Western world. You know, in fact, some women preferred male doctors to even when female doctors began to rise up. But when Clara Swain was going, there were— there were no other. There were no medical options for women. All yeah, women's for women. For women's. <laughs> so she. That's exactly right, and that's really you know that's important to you know her trailblazing here. Mm-hmm. So she was born in Elmira, New York. She was the youngest of ten kids. Got saved young, and when she was ten, she and her sister joined the Methodist Church. We know those Methodists. You know they were yeah. very proactive. So she became a teacher in her early 20s, but she really wanted to become a doctor. So, again, because Elizabeth Blackwell had already paved the way here, she went to medical school. And she went to Philadelphia Women's Medical College. I think that's where Elizabeth Blackwell went, wasn't it? Maybe. And she graduated in 18—no, it was somewhere else. Okay, I can't remember. Elizabeth Blackwell, remember, she went to that men's college. Oh, up, yeah, that's right. That's right. But that's so okay. she graduated in 1869. And I do have to say, though, this is crazy. With the gals I'm going to be talking about here— we probably could have done a whole podcast on just people who went to Philadelphia Women's Medical College. This must have been a hot spot, where, which was one of the only places to go, because this is where all of them went. Mm-hmm. That's where Ida Scudder went. Oh, it was Ida. I'm but getting then, them confused. Yeah, yeah. But then she went, ended up at um, Cornell her okay. senior year. Okay, gotcha. Mm-hmm. That's right. So there was a connection somewhere. We knew something was going on there. <laughs> yes. So she was actually thinking about serving as a medical missionary to India, and in God's timing, she learned about this request from missionaries uh, Mr. and Mrs. Thomas— and they were asking for a woman doctor specifically to come to Bareilly, North India, 
to provide medical treatment. This was a very unknown thing. But as we've already heard from Ida Scudder's story, that was just, you know, what was needed. Because these Indian women were dying, there was no medical care for them uh, because they couldn't see a male doctor. It was inappropriate in the culture, like Cheryl said, and as we saw with Ida. So um, Clara was confident, though, that this was God's call for her life. She agreed to go. She didn't even know these people, but she just heard about this need and decided to go. And the Methodist Episcopal Church sent her out. She sailed actually with a fellow missionary named Isabella Thoburn, who started the first girls' school in North India. Fun fact. So she goes with just an educator, and they go off and do separate trailblazing things in India, which is pretty neat. And in her first year there, Clara treated 1,300 patients, which is nuts, trained 17 medical students because she knew immediately, I've got to get the local people trained in this. That's going to be the most effective thing moving forward. And so um, the work grew. It thrived. They needed to expand and build a hospital, but they didn't know how they were going to be able to do this. And so she and the Thomases went to the Nawab, I guess that was the local, the, the prince of the region of that province, and asked if they could purchase the land next to the mission for a hospital because he owned it. And they were super hesitant because the Nawab had been vocally anti-Christian, very hostile to them, very suspicious. Um, but Really, just miraculously, he agreed. I mean, they didn't even finish asking him, and he's like, yep, you can do whatever you want with the land. Shocking. And so Clara later wrote, we accepted the gift with gratitude, not to this prince alone, but to the king of the universe, who we believe put it in his heart to give it to us. I mean, it was just so clear that the Lord was behind this, giving them favor. Um, In fact, it's amazing. The hospital was built, it opened in 1874, and then Nawab actually supported them financially, which was even going beyond giving the land. So pretty remarkable. Um, in 1885, Clara was invited by a Raja, who was an, another uh, prince, to become the physician for the palace women. And she really had to pray about this because she loved her ministry at the hospital, but she really felt like the Lord was calling her to go, even if it meant going um, to the you know upper class um, and being in that environment instead, because she felt like there's no Christian light there either. So if I could bring Jesus into that environment, maybe I just should do that since I have the open door. So she used the opportunity to care for not just the palace women, but women throughout that area. She, you know, brought the gospel into everything she did, um, gave out Bibles along with medical aid, and it had an influence. The the Raja eventually opened a women's hospital um, that same year. His wife uh, made a major donation to Christian work. So she was really a witness, and they, you know, were really softened to the gospel because of uh, her willingness to come and serve among them. And so um, her hospital, like I said, became the first in Asia, continues today as the oldest and largest uh, Methodist hospital in India. And you can actually see pictures of Claire Swain Hospital on the internet. Fun fact. So check it out. Um, That's interesting that it was a Methodist hospital because mm-hmm. later, you know, Ida Scudder will do uh, kind of a reformed. Ah, going the other. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> so that it really is. On the other you know, end of the spectrum. you kind of got more. like Wesley and you've yeah, got. Yeah, you know, got the, the different ends of yes. the spectrum yes. theologically there. Yes, I love that. So Claire goes back to the U.S. in 1896. She makes one more visit to India in 1906 and died uh, back home in 1910 in New York. And her letters and memoirs were published in 1909 uh, with, under the title A Glimpse of India. And uh, Dorothy Clark Wilson actually wrote her biography, Palace oh, of Healing. there you go. Yeah, and she did a bunch of them, right? These medical biographies. Uh, she did, what, the the brands and I think she did Ida, right? I, she did Ida. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah so yep. kind of cool. And she did, uh, I think there's one by on Amy. Simple McPherson, too. Ooh, that's neat. I think. Okay, yeah, she I was a pretty wrong. prolific biographer. Mm-hmm. So, 
Uh, then we have, I'm going to go down to Anna Kugler. We might come back to the next, other one there. <laughs> Anna Kugler was the first evangelical Lutheran medical missionary, and she attended, guess where? Philadelphia Women's Medical College. <laughs> Ta-da! Ta-da! Worked as a physician's assistant at the state asylum, and then she received a letter from a Lutheran missionary in India asking about, you know, telling about the need for medical missionaries to minister to women. I mean, this was just starting to come to the forefront more and more for these missionaries in India that we just can't reach these women and we need somebody to come and help. And so she applied to the Lutheran Mission Society in 1882, but they weren't really ready to start a medical mission at that point. So they said, well, why don't you go as a teacher uh, for the women that are living in harems, you know, the, you know, all the multiple wives of these men. And so she said, well, okay, maybe I'll just go ahead. It's my way in. And then she figured maybe if I could do medical work on the side, eventually they'll agree uh, to support medical missions because uh, they just didn't have a vision for it yet. And so she left in 1883 and was serving in Guntur, South India, where there was no Western medicine at all among the women. Um, and she just kind of tried to incorporate medical care into her duties as a teacher and finally, she was right. The missions board warmed up to the idea. They realized there was a need for this. And so in 1887, she actually opened two dispensaries. Anna uh, faced a lot of cultural challenges, as you can imagine. Um, for one thing, uh, I mean, these are just some silly little things. Um, nobody used um, spoons there. And so, you know, we always think just, oh, just give them a spoonful of this or a teaspoon of that. That had no point of reference. So they had to figure out new ways to do dosages for right, people. Right, right. Uh, just little things we don't even think about. Uh, the fact that a lot of people couldn't read, so you couldn't just write out the instructions on the bottle. You had to really make sure they knew and understood them. Mm -hmm. um, a bigger issue was obviously the caste system. Uh, that was more of a major hurdle to deal with. Um, the upper caste Hindus saw Anna as uh, unclean. And that was that was kind of humiliating, you know, to go in and feel like you're polluting them when you're trying to help, uh, you know, and just to feel like, gosh, I'm such an inconvenience here and, and all of that. It was very challenging. She said, it was not pleasant to be constantly reminded as one entered high caste Hindu homes that one was an unclean object defiling everything one touched. It was not pleasant to have all the bedclothes put to one side while one examined the patient or have a very ill patient taken out of bed and brought into the courtyard because the doctor was too unclean to go inside. Neither did one enjoy stooping down and picking up the medicine bottle because one was too unclean to take it directly from the hand of the Brahmin. That's amazing. But it was, I know, but it was all in the way of opening the path for those who came later. And she had to constantly keep that mentality. I'm just doing this for, for the sake of others. It's challenging. It's hard. And, you know, really a lot of it was just embarrassing and uncomfortable. And she's like, I have to just, you know, work with this. And so Anna did her best to just minister within the confines of the culture and try to find a way so that later other people wouldn't be, you know, so that the, in the Indian people wouldn't be offended, but they would keep the walls down so she could keep ministering for this others. This kind of reminds me of Anna and the King of Siam. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, with that, too, it's funny because, you know, nurses are so clean and doctors are so clean in oh, the high totally. team. And that these people would treat her like unclean. I mean, yes. that's just like uh, yeah, totally ironic. Humiliating. For, yes. Yeah, can you imagine? Yeah, that, yes. if that's all you are is trying to be clean and sanitary. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's a great point. So uh, in 1897, she opened the American Ev Evangelical Lutheran Mission Hospital. That's quite a mouthful. Um, and it was for years considered the best in India. So really good reputation there. And she was loved and respected by the people, even by the colonial officials. Uh, before she died in 1930, she told her good friend Ida Scudder that she wanted to get well so that she could serve in India a full 50 years because she had only been there for 47. 
but um, she did end up dying soon after, sadly. Mm. So, But it's neat. When she died, Ida said that a star of great magnitude has fallen from the galaxy in our medical missionary firmament. And she said Anna was one of those no-blink pioneer women who made it easy for us who follow in their trail. And that's what she wanted to do, even if it meant, you know, a challenge and, and difficulty for her, you know, trying to just go in as humbly as possible and, um, you know— um, appreciate and respect the culture, it paid off for the others who would come after her. Uh, then we have, moving on to another gal, this number is an interesting three. one, number three, we have Hu King Ang. Uh, this is an interesting one, a Chinese woman. And her grandfather was the Mandarin of Fu Chao. He was the second Christian convert in all of South China. That wow. was her grandpa. And um, her dad was a Buddhist, but had become a Christian and, and a Methodist lay preacher as a young man. And so it was neat. She, it was said that one of her earliest memories was listening to her dad share the gospel with people outside her room when she went to bed. So she just grew up knowing about the Lord, and she had just a rare, a very rare Christian legacy, you know, in those times. And so uh, this was still in the foot-binding days. And so when her dad unbound her feet, her mom protested, and, and people made fun of her. So she was really embarrassed, you know, as a girl. But over time, she came to realize what a blessing it was that her dad had been willing to go against the cultural norms uh, and do this for her. And this was going to really help her to be able to be mobile so she could go minister later on. So she went to a boarding school for girls. This is, uh, you know, again, late 1800s. And when she was 18, the Methodist Women's Foreign Missionary Board offered to send her to the U.S. for medical training. And, um, you know, to us nowadays, this seems like not a big deal. It's like, oh, cool. So you got it supported. So you just go. But remember, this is very rare. Not only is she one of the, you know, coming from a very, um, um, isolated, but rare Christian family. There's not a whole lot of them around. Uh, but then for her to go to America, I mean, this was kind of a big deal. Well, you would have gone by afraid. ship, too. Yes, I mean, we yeah. think of travel as so easy, but yeah, by ship. Yeah, this was a big then, deal. Yep. Um, but she really felt the Lord tell her, fear not, for I will go. I will be with you wherever you go. So she took that as a promise, and she ended up becoming one of the first people, not just, you know, people, women, whatever, to leave China for a foreign education. Um, again, remember, from, from in many instances throughout history, the Chinese have been closed off to Western influence. And so mm -hmm. for her to be able to go was a big deal. She left in 1884. She learned had to learn English. It's like one, another thing, another obstacle, another thing she had to do. It wasn't just the fact that she was traveling. She had to learn English. Then she went to Ohio Wesleyan University. And during her first year, this is so cool. During her first year there, she spoke at a prayer service and a whole bunch of students got saved. Wow. And one of the At a Wesleyan college. Yes, interestingly enough, yes. right? She's like, got a Christian well, we school. Both, we both went to a Christian college, yeah, the same one. Some of them different aren't saved. Times. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> we knew people needed saving. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so cool because a mother of one of those students who got saved later wrote and said, little did I think when I was giving money for the work in China that a Chinese girl would come to this country and be mm. the means of leading my daughter to Christ. Oh, Isn't awesome. that cool? That's awesome. I, that's like God's economy. That's mm -hmm. how he works. So um, Hu King Ang then attended Women's Medical College in Philadelphia. Surprise, surprise. And then she went back to China in 1895. So this is what, a 10-year period that she was in the States. And she went as the first female Chinese doctor served in the Methodist Fu Chao Hospital and saw many, not only physically, but spiritually healed as well. She was the first person to use uh, running water and modern toilets, these things we take for granted now. Um, she made so many medical improvements in her country. She opened a medical school for Chinese women. So the Lord really used her. She was quite a pioneer in Chinese uh, 
uh, medicine uh, there. And so that's just so neat when we read about these stories, these pioneers in in medicine and, and how many of them were just strong believers. And that's what, you know, influenced all they did. Then we have Katerina Schellenberg. Uh, she was uh, Russian. It doesn't sound like it, but well, the Katerina part. <laughs> she was born in Russia, but her family immigrated to America when she was eight. Uh, and her dad was a, Mich- uh, sorry, a Mennonite brethren preacher and was important to the growth of that church, actually in the Midwest of America. So her mom died when she was 14. She took care of her younger siblings uh, because of that. And then when she was 19, she really committed her life to the Lord and began to be interested in foreign missions. And she even started uh, working in an orphanage, a couple hospitals. She developed some nursing skills there and then felt called to become a missionary herself. So um, she was advised to go get a little bit more medical training. So she actually did not go to Philadelphia Women's Medical College. This is the only one in our, yeah, right? Wait, wait, <laughs> so wait. The, she went somewhere else. What? But the girl before did not either. Oh, no. Hu King Yang did. Oh. She did. It was after she had gone oh, to the Wesleyan the School. Wesley. Yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so she studied uh, homeopathic medicine, interestingly, for wow. four years. And then in 1907, I know that was kind of cutting edge, you know, that wasn't as popular back then. And then in 1907, she left for uh, India as uh, the first Mennonite medical missionary and the only American medical doctor uh, in that region there with the India Brethren Mission. And she only took two furloughs in 38 years of ministry, which is pretty remarkable. Uh, But again, with all of these gals, one of her great challenges was convincing the Indian people that they could trust her medicine. Um, And, you know, she had to treat women that couldn't be attended by a male doctor. You know, like Ida Scudder, all of these women faced the same challenges. And so she's educating the people on hygiene, clean water, sewage disposal. Again, things that we take for granted. These women went over and um, were able to improve and influence. And so after 10 years, she wrote to her father and said, the problems are so severe that one heart can hardly stand it and one does not know where it will end. But God sees and knows all. He can change things. And so with that determination that God could move, she pressed on in 1928, she opened a hospital herself in Shamshabad. And, uh, you know, again, all of these women incorporated, um, you know, the gospel into everything they did. She made sure there was a devotional time every day for everyone in the hospital. The patients could attend if they wanted to. And she's so cute. On Sunday, she would go out with her auto harp and sing with the patients and stuff. Uh, you know, just very hands-on. Um, she never married, but she took in homeless children um, and, again, was just so involved in the community. When she died, she was greatly mourned. She was buried in Hyderabad under a memorial stone that says she lived for Christ, she served others, and she sacrificed herself. It's like, wow, I think everybody wants to have that kind of a testimony to sum up their lives. That's amazing. Um, So it's so sweet. So um, just a couple more here, folks. I think I'm going to make it. Number five. Sarah Seward, number five, born in Florida, New York. She was the niece of, fun fact, William Seward, who was uh, Abraham Lincoln's secretary of state, the guy who bought Alaska, Seward's Folly, <laughs> helped Harriet Tubman. You might remember from a previous podcast, he's the one who bought Harriet Tubman a house. <laughs> so she came from this uh, pretty prestigious family, attended seminary, and then went to, of course, Philadelphia <laughs> Women's Medical College, graduated in 1860, um, went to China with her brother from 1861 to 1865. Don't know a whole lot about what happened during that time, but it gave her a heart for ministry, clearly, because Uh, the opportunity came up for female doctors to practice in India, and she was among the very first to say, I will go. Uh, She headed out in 1871, supported by the Women's Union Missionary Society, started a dispensary in Allahabad, um, and served there for almost 20 years. Every morning, she and her assistants 
would talk to the Indian patients, read the Bible with them, uh, share the gospel, give them books. And so the women would take these books home and keep reading them. So again, that was always there. There was, again, undergirding all of the practical ministry was a spiritual foundation. Um, And so they were able to get a hospital built um, in 1893, which was named after her as well. So all these women just, again, so uh, instrumental in particularly in India, but, you know, China, all around the world. And I want to close with uh, one last gal who's a little bit further towards modern times, a Brit, and she is the founder of Modern Hospice Care. So this is kind of interesting. I know, Mm -hmm. you don't realize that that woman was also a really strong believer. Her name is Cicely Saunders. And so she wanted to be a nurse, but her dad objected. And so, uh, you know, instead she went to St. Anne's College in Oxford to study uh, politics, philosophy, economics. She was just like, okay, I'll just honor my parents. And so she went to school uh, for that. But then uh, when she was, oh, wait, wait, how old was she? Would she been 21 at this point? 21, World War II broke out, right? So she goes back to her nursing dream at this point. She was just like, man, you know, all this other stuff's fine, but I can really make an impact um, if I go to medical school and do some, you know, some more practical ministry like this. And so she attends uh, Nightingale Training School. So that's kind of fun, right? Florence Nightingale, the legacy lives on. And so uh, in 1944, she finished her degree as a medical social worker. And then uh, she was actually at this point, sorry, I used the word ministry earlier. She actually wasn't thinking of it that way. (laughs) She was just thinking medical service. But she was an agnostic as a teenager and as a young adult. And then uh, she ended up in 1945, at the end of the war, uh, going on a Christmas holiday with some Christian friends. And it was during that time that she really gave her life to the Lord. And she really sensed from that moment on that the Lord was giving her a a true sense of calling that, you know, medical work wasn't just something to go do on a practical level, but there was a spiritual, uh, you know, component behind all of it. Exactly. So a couple of years later, in, in 1948, she's serving in a hospital. And she fell in love with one of her patients. Uh, his name was David Tasma. He was a Polish-Jewish refugee who had escaped the Warsaw Ghetto uh, during the war. Wow. And so, yeah. And he had cancer. So mm. he was there, and it was terminal, unfortunately. But, you know, they fell in love. And, and so they're talking about just, you know, their lives and plans. And they talked a lot about Sicily's dream. And at this point, she, like I said, had really felt a sense of calling from the Lord. And she began to see the Lord really honing in this dream to build a home for dying patients. And I think David inspired that uh, to get quality, compassionate care until they died, you know, to somebody to really hold their hand uh, in those final days. And um, so when he died, he died soon after this. It was so sad. But this is so sweet. He left her all of his money. It was 500 pounds, which back then was quite a substantial amount. And he said, I'm leaving this to you to be a window in your home because he's like, I know you want to build this home and this money will be the window. And I just thought, that's so sweet. Anyway, so um, this was so inspiring, you know, her relationship with him and just, again, walking with him through his final days. She decided, you know what? I I don't want to just be a nurse. I need to go back to medical school and become a fully qualified doctor so I can really bring about this dream of ministering to dying patients. And so um, she goes off to medical college and uh, studies. And then after school, she begins to study pain management um, more specifically. And she began to work in a hospice that was run by nuns and introduced new methods of pain control because she realized there was so much more than just 
physical pain. Like there was a lot of mental anguish that accompanied all of this and people could really go downhill into depression and all of that. And so she was just working to hone, you know, um, the, the pain management that was being done during that time and, and the, the measures that were being taken. And she also knew, as I've already mentioned, that there was a spiritual element behind all of this. And that's really, again, what undergirded all that she wanted to do. And she said that she longed to bring patients to know the Lord and to do something towards helping many of them hear of him before they die. But she said, I also long to raise the standards of terminal care throughout the country, from a medical point of view at least, even where I can do nothing about the spiritual part of the work. So she figured, you know, even if I'm not able to bring the gospel to somebody, they don't want to hear it, or for whatever reason, I still want to, you know, do what I can to really um, improve this field as much as I possibly can. And so after 11 years, she was finally able to finalize and formulate a plan for the first purpose-built hospice. You know, again, what she had worked in before, hospice care among like nuns was in convents and stuff. It was kind of a side thing. It wasn't, there wasn't a facility that was expressly for this purpose. And so she built the first hospice. And it's cool because uh, what encouraged her was Psalm uh, 37.5, you know, um, uh, commit your way to the Lord, trust all swim in him, and he will bring it to pass. All that, that part, portion of scripture that's so familiar to us, that was really what undergirded what she was doing. And so uh, she raised some funds and she built St. Christopher's Hospice in London in 1967. And, and that was surprising to me to realize like, wow, hospice care really hasn't been around that long. Wow. So she established this first hospice in 1967. And uh, her biographer said, it's principles of pain relief and care for the physical, social, psychological, and spiritual needs of terminal patients, their families and friends, became a pattern duplicated throughout England, the United States, and indeed the world. So again, she was a total pioneer. She's the one who really founded this entire establishment. And she started it as a ministry. Um, her mindset is expressed in this quote. And I love this quote. I think this is just, you know, such a cool perspective. She said, the fullest consideration of the problem of innocent suffering is given in the book of Job. Job was not given any answer to his questions, but instead was given a vision of God, which silenced his asking. We are given the vision of Jesus crucified, bearing our griefs, carrying our sorrows. That vision brings us to the point where we change our questions. Why should this happen? Changes to, how can I help with God's grace? Or what can I do in this situation which he shares with me? And, and just the fact that God is with us in our suffering, that he suffered, and so he so we're entering into that with him. I, I just love that, the perspective that she wanted to bring to this and the compassion and love of God to bring that into uh, such a, a moment of crisis for so many people. And so um, Sicily was made a dame of the British Empire, uh, greatly honored uh, around England. She even had a portrait made for her at the National Portrait Gallery. I'm like, oh gosh, I need. I know I want to go find that now. Next time we're there, so, yes. yes, that's the <laughs> that's the goal. Bucket list. <laughs> um, and she, you know, later in life, this is crazy. This kept happening to her. She fell in love with another patient um, who died in 1960. So sad. I mean, there's so much, you know, sadness in those things. Uh, but she did finally get married. It's so sweet. She got married in her 60s. And I thought that was so sweet. And um, she ended up uh, passing away from breast cancer in 2005. So those are our six gals that I wanted to share on. And I just well wanted to done, close. Jasmine. I know, look at that. <laughs> with a minute to spare. I just want to close, though, with a neat quote. Uh, there was this guy, a Dr. Parker, not a familiar person or anything, but his biographer said that through medicine, Dr. Parker 
opened the gates of China with a lancet when European cannons could not heave a single bar. In other words, and I love this, uh, God often used the practical skills of these medical missionaries to open doors for the gospel that never could have been opened otherwise. Like that quote said, you know, European cannons couldn't break through some of those those walls in places like China, you know, that were resistant. Um, But, you know, through medicine, they were able to come in with those practical skills and the Lord would, you know, use those to open a door, make a way for the gospel. So, you know, never underestimate the practical skills God gives you to open doors for his kingdom. And so that's something that I think we just see clearly. And again, that's an encouragement. You don't even have to be in medicine, but just think about the practical things the Lord has gifted you in that, you know, can be used to open doors that would not be opened otherwise for the kingdom of God. You know, so Jasmine, you did six. I hope you're going to list them on our website. Oh, yeah. So, so we will we will list all those gals for you. Because and- <laughs> all I remember is Anna. Yeah, there's I got, Anna, there's Clara, there's Sarah. Clara and Sarah. Cicely. I got Cicely. I got so into the uh, testimonies that. <laughs> so, man, those are six women worth knowing. Yes, they absolutely are. So thanks for joining us again on Women Worth Knowing. That's and right. Please send us in anybody that you think is a woman that we should know about as well. Remember our uh, email address, wwk at cccm.com. And uh, our website, women.cccm.com, graciouswords.com. You can find links to the Women Worth Knowing podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett.